Hello and welcome to the Marketing Mind podcast, brought to you by the editorial team of Marketing Magazine and our friends at Something Else. In this month's episode, we're going to be talking about taste and whether it should matter if brands are causing any offence to someone somewhere. Today, we're joined by David Bain, the planning partner and founding partner at BMB. And our features editor at Marketing Magazine, Rebecca Coleman. Hello to you both. Hello. Hello. So, I mean, taste is a very subjective issue. Who actually, you know, who's out there to decide what is good and what is bad taste, especially in terms of advertising? Rebecca? Well, I guess the uh, ASA <laughs> yeah. are there to do that. I think that they think they're doing a very good job of it, but I don't know how much people kind of like to be offended now everyone seems to take everything quite seriously and uh, I don't know if they if they like it when ads are banned yeah people power you need someone to set the rules I guess in that respect but in terms of you know what the public finds you know distasteful I think there's a distinction between the public and the complaining public because I think what's happened in the last 10 years or maybe more in the last five years is social media has become a kind of umbrage engine and it's never been easier to complain and to take offence at what can seem really marginal bits of, uh, of an advertising execution. Mm. Apparently the most ever complaints was from the um, Kentucky Fried Chicken ad where people were singing <laughs> when they were eating and so the grounds of complaint was people had their mouth full. <laughs> you know? And this offended England beyond um, any, yeah. any stray nipples or swear I get words. Well, you know, we like our food etiquette, yeah. don't we? So. <laughs> and are you easily offended? I'm, I'm offended by... Most advertising, actually, uh, (laughs) because I find it so unspeakably bland. I don't think it's good taste or bad taste. I think it's no taste. I think it's been created without, without craft or care and is about as tasteful as a regional train company's uniforms. And I find mm. that really offensive. Yeah, yeah, I can see that. And, you know, it's also subject to, you know, cultural change, isn't it? What we do and what we don't find offensive yeah. as a nation. And one example of that, uh, I think your, your esteemed colleague, Trevor Beatty, yeah. with FC UK, you know, it's enormous in the, um, in the 90s mm-hmm. and you know, when it was dreamt up and lasted for a long time. But it sort of shifted, didn't it? And perhaps lost, lost its cleverness and became a bit overused. But actually yeah. this week, back in the news, that it, it might be coming back. Yeah, I think, yeah, I think it's a sign of an of a increasingly desperate French connection that it may be coming <laughs> yeah. back. But I think, you know, if we speak to Trevor about that, he'll say that that was a, a piece of advertising scandal that, that when it became on the slogan on every T-shirt, it went from being something clever and marginal and subversive to something that was just saying fuck uh, in, in a million places at once and it, and it did lose its intelligence mm. and but, on kids t-shirts yeah and I, th- and I think that was more the way that our idea was adopted by the company than it was where it lived in, in advertising you know it was there as a as a delightful little piece of scandal that became the brand and I think that was the problem with that more than it's gone it's lost its uh it's intelligence. It just became too ubiquitous. Yeah. Well, we've got a clip um, from Dr. Simon Stewart, lecturer in sociology at Portsmouth University, who uh, we spoke to over the phone earlier, and he examines what taste is in wider culture. You know, notions of good taste and bad taste are kind of relative or relational rather than absolute concepts. You know, there's no one source of them, though, of course, you know, there's, you know, what is considered to be good taste is still... There are still sort of forms of taste that are, I guess, given the stamp of legitimacy by dominant societal institutions, whether that's prestigious commercial companies, you know, higher education institutions, uh, you know, prizes, galleries, you know, prominent sort of social and cultural figures. Well, I, th- I think this uh, th- this idea that taste is a, almost a class weapon, good taste and bad taste is used to discriminate in the literal sense, to discriminate against people, is a kind of societal truism. It's, a, you know, it's the 
upper class taste looks down at middle class taste looks down at working class taste and, and i think that's always been thus but it's always been a mark of a divided country so if that sense of good and bad taste is eroding as a way to look down on people for saying the word toilet <laughs> i think that's got to be a really really good thing i think that's different to 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 advertising where i think the issue of taste is more about the lack of taste of those people who are making advertising the secret we never let on in agencies is the most important determinant whether an ad's good or not is the taste of your client if they have good taste or not and that actually you have a client who has good taste and by that i mean they can make distinctive coherent judgments so a thing has an integrity creatively that leads to good advertising bad taste committee taste consensus taste that leads to stuff that is it's not going to offend anyone but it's going to just add to the Bland. to the blandness most people's attitude to advertising is neither offense nor delight it's indifferent you know, so 100 people might complain 20,000 more don't take any notice at all. Well, we've got a, a second clip from um, Dr Stewart where he, he talks about how those lines of good and bad taste are blurring. Taste patterns, have, you know, they, they seem more fluid. Uh, for example, you know, highly educated or privileged people enjoy what, you know, what we might call trashy culture, perhaps in a way they might not have done in the past, but, but nevertheless the way they consume this culture differs from the way it is consumed by you know, less prestigious groupings. You know, to, and I guess this is particularly appropriate in the field of advertising where you've got a, the use of a lot of irony or distance, whether that's, you know, from the, from the advert makers or on the part of consumers, where, you know, people will be playful with, with, with notions of taste. Well, there was some great research, actually, that we, um, we had in a feature in, in the, the latest issue of marketing from Grey London, where they said that 87% of people said it was unjustifiable to use bad taste to sell a product. David, what, what do you think of that? Again, it's, I suppose it's the definition of taste and you're talking I, about yeah. tasteless advertising. I think it's one of those um, great projections where people take offence on other people's behalf. Oh, I'm not offended myself because I'm obviously very liberal and funny and ironic, but I'd imagine <laughs> other people would be offended. So it's a, I think it's, a, you know, I love Grey London, but it's a rather stark and unsophisticated question. Do you, do you wish people to be offended? Of course, of course not. I'm, I'm good, good on the thirteen percent who stuck up for a bit of offence in life. <laughs> but you know, I think the real thing that matters is: are are you offended? Do do you genuinely feel any sense of 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 shock or upset when you see a Chris Moyles ad uh, where he bumps into people? You know, that got a hundred complaints, and and thankfully the ASA. Um, didn't uh, didn't Gosh. hold up that. Well, complaint. just health and safety. Or something. He, was, he was barging people. You know, it's ter- terribly bad manners. <laughs> but the offensive thing about that ad, or the the tastelessness, was that it was so derivative. Not that, that he was a bit clumsy as he walked down the street. Yeah, and also when it comes to advertising today, I mean, one of the biggest challenges is trying to stand out, isn't it? And perhaps you know, pushing the boundaries, whether it's boundaries of taste or whatever boundary. That's probably what every brand is striving for, aren't they? Yeah, and it's it's very very hard to be distinctive. And, and actually, a lot of the, um, the the shock tactics of of the past just aren't available. We're, we're increasingly regulated, and many of the uh, famously risque campaigns of the past wouldn't wouldn't make it these days. They they would be strangled at birth. Give, give us an example. Well, what do you think? well, if you look at the beer category, we look at the particularly TV advertising in beer as the golden age of British advertising. All those famous campaigns that water in Mallorca don't taste like what it ought wouldn't get it wouldn't get on air because it wouldn't pass the, the, the now more stringent ASA regulations. So, you know, the the opportunity to uh, offend is is mm. relatively narrow now. And and actually I don't it's 
it's never an, an intention. I think the, the intention is always to be noticed and, and to sometimes polarise, and that's OK. If you can delight your audience and, and scandalise another one, that's fine. I think that's a, a brand like Paddy Power. Yeah, uh, as, as, I mean, it's you know, tip of everyone's tongue, isn't it, really? yeah, when it comes yeah. to offence? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And GBK, I mean, they're most recent. Gourmet yeah. Burger uh, Kitchen. Yes, yeah. Gourmet Burger Kitchen. Yeah, Gourmet um, Burger Kitchen. Who have uh, upset the vegetarians uh, of Britain. Oh, yeah, the, the quinoa, the new quinoa <laughs> burger or something. Yes, there's it? a picture <laughs> of a cow in one that says, they eat grass so you don't have to. Well, but I, but I would it, say they've, <laughs> they've offended the officials of the vegan society who are looking to piggyback on that campaign for some publicity I, I, you know, my, my wife's a vegetarian and she, she would never, never in a million years be offended <laughs> genuinely, you know, we use this word offence and think about what it really means, that you look at it and it upsets you and you carry that upset with you, I don't, I don't believe more than a, a handful of vegetarians at the Vegan Society were offended by that campaign but it's not, they, we're talking about them so they have done their job in marketing themselves. Mm, but I think we're going to see a lot more brands and marketers maybe going after that, so going after the backlash culture in a way, yeah. because that GBK advert probably wouldn't have been that widely acknowledged or noticed, yeah. but they've actually got a lot more publicity off the back of it. Yeah, because yeah, yeah. Mm. Well, it's a calculated it's risk, isn't it? Yeah. I think, you know, you kind of, you know that it might backfire. You're not sure what the backlash will be, but if you sort of strike the right balance, then... You know, people are going to be shouting about your brand and papers are going to be writing about you, yeah. which is It's the cows I feel sorry for. <laughs> They're the only ones that didn't win in that situation. No, they're selling more burgers, yeah. probably. <laughs> We've got another um, interview, actually, coming up from uh, Robin Fitzgerald, the uh, creative director at Crispin, Porter & Bogusky. Uh, now, she helped create an app for American mustard brand Grey Poupon, which uh, judged fans on whether they actually showed good taste on Facebook. So they only actually allowed you to like the brand if you, you know, displayed on your profile that you could spell, that you didn't have all these trashy photos up, and, you know, only then were you allowed to like the brand, which is uh, it's kind of a, quite a divisive, uh, divisive strategy, but, you know, gets attention. Also, Robin uh, helped create the first ad campaign for TV show Nip Tuck. This is what she has to say. I have an example of something that I did. This was a while back, probably more than 10 years ago, which was probably mm. the most tasteless advertising I've ever done. But I, I wouldn't apologize for it because it felt like it was so right for the brand. It was on the FX channel and we were launching it. We were helping them launch it and it was this series called Nip Tuck. The show is very, it's very graphic surgeries they show, but they also, it's like, it's hard to find redeeming value in that show because it's, it's oftentimes about, you know, these shallow stories centered around people that you kind of love to hate. And again, like very, um, graphic shock shock uh worthy visuals throughout the whole thing. So when we launched we helped kind of, you know, created the promos to launch that, it felt like it would have done it an injustice to try to to sugarcoat it. Like, I mean, this is a show that came with a viewer discretion um at the front of it. So we actually created spots where people were performing home plastic surgery procedures and this this tagline that it was like it's the perfectly disturbing new series. Like, I actually showed somebody sewing a hair plug into his bald scalp. Um, and I was like, this is probably one of the most disgusting things I've done, but it feels so right. And so for that market, like, I, or, you know, and for that time, um, I, I, I wouldn't apologize for it. I feel like that that was bad taste done in a good way. So I think from that clip, you know, sometimes shock is 
a good strategy to go after. Not for every brand, but so, you know, when you look at charities, you know, going for that shock strategy is often often the best approach, or often certainly an approach that... Um, you know, seems to seems to cut through. Yeah, yeah. I, th- I think um, f- f- for me, advertising exists in a public context, and you have a re- your responsibility is not to pollute culture. And sometimes advertising that's that's um, graphic or violent that that could be you could view that as pollution. But I think the greater pollution is all this this stuff we pump out, all those retargeted digital ads that tap you on the shoulder and go, do you really want to buy a kettle? Do you really want to buy a kettle? Do you still want a kettle? For me, that's pumping stuff out into culture that's that's a low-level NO2. It's a pollutant. And yes, there, there might be the occasional ad that, that shows a graphic image of plastic surgery, and I think you need to be careful about the context. Don't put it outside the school. But that's a that's less polluting than the the low-level exhaust fumes of mediocrity. Well, I think one good example, actually, that Rebecca raised in, in the uh, the feature that we've got on what is bad taste was the heroin baby, the Bernardo's ad from, um, I think, the late 90s. And such a shocking image, it but really it really, shocking. you know, it sort of cuts you to the core, I think, doesn't it? It does, and I think that that's probably a good strategy for a lot of charities, although um, Tessa Herbert from the NSPCC believes that it's never good to shock purely to increase donations Mm. and help fundraising but if you're really trying to tell a story and it's a shocking story then maybe that's something you need to employ there's an interesting truth i think in charity advertising in the sector they call it the fly on the eyes syndrome and you know these really hard-nosed fundraisers want their advertising to to depict the problem, the flies on the eyes of the starving child in the most shocking way possible because there's a very strong correlation between that and donation. I'll do anything not to think about that image. The brand people at charities often want to go in a different direction and they want to give people hope that actually donating makes a difference and that these problems are solvable. So I think the shock tactic of, of charity fundraising is often it's killing the golden goose. It's, it leads to a sense of hopelessness that yet again another famine, here's another picture of another starving child, when the truth is that the interventions that charities and other people are making are actually making the world better, but the advertising makes you think it's worse. And so there's a fundraising tactic which responds really, really well to, to really, really harsh images, the harsher the better. And there's a brand context where you actually want to think there is hope and there's a constant tension. Yeah, and they kind of they flip flop either yeah. either way. Yeah, depends you, depends who's in charge mm. of the budget that that month. <laughs> <laughs> I think Paddy Power did quite an interesting thing with their Save the Rainforest. Actually, back to Paddy Power for the Rio World Cup, they shaved. Um, they sh- come oh, on come England, on England yeah. that was it mm. in the rainforest, and that caused outrage across social media, which of course they played up, and then it turned into Save the Rainforest, and of course it was photoshopped, and they didn't yeah, go and chop down job, all those but, trees. I mean. Obviously, kudos to Paddy Power on that one and drawing attention to an amazing issue, but they've definitely overstepped the line, in my opinion. I don't know if I if I take offence at a lot of things, but a couple of Paddy Power's ads I have mm-hmm. taken offence at. Probably Oscar Pistorius, Money Back If He Walks. You know, I think Paddy Power themselves actually have said we probably mm-hmm. <laughs> crossed the line on that one. But also the um, Dennis Rodman basketball yeah. tournament in North Korea, I just... I don't know. I just I found that bad taste because I just I just don't find North Korea that funny. Yeah. It's, I think there's, it's a degree of intelligence, and I think when Paddy Power get it right, they are a rascal, but they're really, really sharp and intelligent and funny. And when they get it wrong, they make comedy out of um, of dictators, um, a mentally ill ex sportsman and Dennis Rodman in um, um, domestic violence to women. You know, there's it, both the subject matter and the execution are a mm-hmm. bit dumb, and it, they have to tread the line where 
if if it's sufficiently intelligent and and scandalous, you love them for it. And if it's scandalous and a little a little bit ape like, you really you really don't like it. Well, they they say there's a test that they apply to everything. But it's it's all to do with context and relevance. Will people be laughing about it in the pub later? I don't know. I don't, it's good it that they've got some sort who. of test. It depends who's in the pub laughing <laughs> yeah. about it, doesn't it? I mean, they, they did one. They they say that they have to be very time specific as well because public opinion can sort of turn on a knife's edge. There was uh, ad they did around uh, migrants. So, jump in the back of the lorry, but only if you're good at sports. Kind of around the time of the Olympics, which then got away with it, but now. Probably, mm. I think they barely got away with it then, didn't yeah. they? But, yeah, but, ne- but now, I mean, now. I have to confess an involvement in this. We, 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 <laughs> oh, God, um, yeah. we had, I thought you'd gone quiet for no, a second. No, no, we won, <laughs> we, we won the Paddy Power uh, account um, for about about a month and a half earlier this year. Um, um, and we we did a piece of advertising in uh, the Republic of Ireland for the um, gay marriage referendum. Oh, yeah. And that I think that was just on the right side of intelligence. It was too balaclavered figures uh, kissing, getting married, with um, the Gaelic phrase, Chucky Arla, which is a Republican rallying cry, which means our time will come. And that caused, it, we, we divided the whole country of Ireland overnight. And, you know, there, but there was, a, there was a smartness to it. We'd, we'd taken that issue and entwined it into Irish identity and Republican identity in a quite incendiary way. That was really well received. And there were lots of people were, were as offended, but... The, in a way, the positive kudos outweighed mm. the offence. But massively risky. Yeah. And that's, I mean, that's Paddy Power all over, isn't it? Yeah, but yeah. I think probably, you know, risk is talked about a lot, isn't it, with, with marketing yeah. directors, especially now, you know, can you find one that will take risks? We sent them that ad as a joke. We thought, this is, this, <laughs> this is uh, the provisional IRA snogging. And I said, brilliant, we'll, we'll try and run it on the Falls Road. And we said, what? <laughs> <laughs> well, that's, I mean, that's good advertising, isn't it? If it, yeah. if it does get cut through and gets people talking, yeah. some, well, depending on your definition. Yeah, slightly worried about our own kneecaps. <laughs> yeah. We've got another clip, actually, from, um, from Robin at Crispin Porter, when she's uh, just talking about how it might be a bit tougher these days to pull off some of those shocking ads. It feels like it's such dangerous waters now. Because everything has to be so politically correct, um, and that means something different for so many groups. I feel like you can cough the wrong way, and you could, you, you'll offend somebody somewhere. You know, you just have to decide who, <laughs> what, what, what's, what's your greater goal, and what's, what's the story you want to tell. And I think on social, just from like a consumer point of view, like I think consumers have more power than ever to kind of steer how advertising is perceived and marketing like everybody has their own bullhorn now they can um and you know their own networks of followers and groups of friends that that they can kind of um you know put into action with with one of their causes um immediately and kind of can start to sway how people perceive some of the advertising social media is Definitely a big issue in this conversation, I think. Do you find, David, that brands and marketers are particularly afraid to take some of the risks because of, you know, that that backlash that can come through social? I haven't actually come across a client articulate it that way, but I think you you are um, radically visible in your your advertising now. And I think to the extent that, that the agency or the client will kind of get hunted down in social media. I just think it... it creates carefulness the positive side of of all that is you you put an ad out and you have response to it the next morning you know and 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 filtering through 
the response, both good and bad, you're going to have a load of people hating it. Um, and you, but and you got to weigh up all those who really love it, and you've got to try and re read the a story in those tea leaves. Um, but I think the sense that all complaints get can get amplified and can gather momentum really quickly. I think that's the difference. Uh, it, it, it's kind of a live thing and it can change kind of in real time. And Protein World is the sort of classic example, yeah. I think, there. I think when I very first saw the ad, when I was just in the, on the underground, I kind of barely read the copy on it, actually. I was just looking at this bright yellow ad and thinking, you know, why is this woman in a bikini and it's quite cold outside? And then, you know, the next day, suddenly... It was everywhere, and it was all everyone was talking about. And then I, you know, read into it, and then, then I felt offended. Actually, I know we were quite divided in the office, but, but there, there was offence. Yeah, I don't, don't think I found it as offensive as, as some other people. <laughs> <laughs> but I think what more, more marketers are worried about, rather than that, is no one talking about it. It's like that Oscar Wilde uh, quote, isn't it? The only thing worse than being talked about is not being talked about um, and people don't share bland things so if you're going to go down the opposite route and always play it safe then there's the risk that no one's going to share anything you put out there. Yeah and I think some of the most progressive brands are beginning to work out you can play games with those conversations and, and you can do things in, in, in digital and social that you can't get away with in advertising. Paddy Parrot, another great example of this and the stuff they put out by Twitter is, is uh, really triple X stuff. Um, but but they know where and when to have a conversation. Just, just looking back at some, um, you know, an old ad, say the Tango Man, the Orange Man, sort of slap happy. You know, how how do you think that would go down today with social media? Because obviously, you know, that that really kind of divided people because people, some people were physically getting hurt in the real world as a result of that ad. I'd like to think it was only, uh, you know, not too many, but you know, they were getting slapped on buses and whatnot. I think it would go down brilliantly. I think it would have been. A, it, it was a cultural phenomenon at the time, and it came into a, an advertising context and, and was so startlingly original that I think the the lovers of it would be really, really vocal. Again, I wonder whether uh, the kind of health and safety aspect of advertising uh, would allow that to get on air. Now, mm. we did a, a campaign which had featured a dog in the in the in the back of a car. And it had to wear a seatbelt. The seatbelt wasn't visible, but the dog had to wear a seatbelt. Oh, that's yeah. quite cute. <laughs> there's, since, uh, there's a VW ad that only has dogs leaning out of cars. And if you notice, they're all wearing doggy seatbelts. Oh, really? um, because obviously, if people see an ad with a dog not wearing a seatbelt, they're going to kill the dog yeah. the next day. That's well, there was a John Lewis ad a few years ago where the, the dog was outside at Christmas. And there were, there were complaints about that, I think. This poor dog out in the snow. <laughs> we do love, we love our pets, don't like we? Like so. a poor old man on the moon. Yeah. yeah that's it. That, well, that offended some, didn't yeah. it? So. <laughs> Looking at bad taste, there's a slightly different, different kind of take on it. Is whether it's, or what place brands have sometimes in a kind of, a broader conversation, especially around disasters. So, you know, as an example, with the flooding, you know, you had you had a great uh, interaction, I think, from Asda, where they gave out flooding packs to homes that were affected. But then, say, with the Paris attacks, you know, it's quite hard for brands to sort of... E they either had to keep quiet and not communicate at all on Twitter or, that you know, they, they put the sort of flag of solidarity up. But, you know, where, where, is, where is a brand's place when it comes to that conversation, do you think? I think... Um... It, de it depends on how humbly the brand approaches its role in people's lives. You know, one of the great truths about brand management is the brand man managers think that brands are important in a way that they're not to ordinary people. So if you live and breathe toilet duck, 
um, you might think, well, toilet ducks are, can, can be part of any conversation <laughs> because, you know, we, we're keeping a million toilets clean across the world and that's important. And in the real world, it's not at all important. And with that humility goes, right, there are some things, some conversations we have no part in at all. So again, with a bit of humility and sensitivity, you can guide where it's appropriate to, to, to participate and where to keep your gob shut. You've got to be humble. You haven't got to have that brand management egotism of we're a big part of popular culture and we've been making decent gravy for 200 years. No one cares. You've got to know your place, I suppose, yeah, and all that, yeah. haven't you? And I think with the, the Paris attacks, there were a couple of brands that were um, you know flagged up for doing good work and T-Mobile, I think, was that, is that right? They allow people to communicate uh, or to call France you know, free of charge for, I'm not sure for the duration, but and then Airbnb as well, I think, during the Paris attacks, they reimbursed the hosts for the extra time that people had to stay on. So, you know, it's a sort of proper service, I suppose, yeah. isn't it? I suppose it? it's good judgment. So yeah, another word for it. taste is judgment, and those brands exercised really good judgment, didn't they? What they could do in a small, humble way was appropriate to that situation versus... Let's get let's jump on this one because everyone's talking about it. It's it's a it's a hard line to tread, isn't it? There's kind of big risks that are attached to um, you know going for this sort of headline grabbing piece of work that you know you might get that sort of short term everyone's talking about you, but long term damage to the reputation. Yeah, potentially. What yeah. what sort of advice, David, would do you give to clients or or just when you're approaching different brands? What kind of advice do you give on that about how how far they should push it? The advice tends to be for brand communications push it as far as you dare and a bit further when it is contextual and it's and it's coming off something in culture tread much much more carefully and to think about i suppose to think about the user or the receiver of that message do would they wish to hear from you right now do you think it's a kind of uk thing you know like the examples david gave you know we're actually offended by a lot of things in this country i think we quite like to be offended and i think there is part of people that just like that uproar you know Points of View was a very popular TV <laughs> programme, wasn't it, for that reason? People like writing letters. Mm. And now social media has taken over from that letter-writing culture of just sort of griping about things for the sake of it. It lets us do that English thing of griping after the event. You know, never, ever say anything in person. You get served a plate of, plate of tripe in a restaurant. You'd never say anything. You'd smile and go, mm, it's really nice. Then get on social media afterwards and tear them a new one. Yeah, that seems to be... It, it ties into a certain aspect of Britishness. We love it. We love to be offended. We love to be offended. <laughs> yeah, we, we love to take umbrage. Uh, well, that's great talking to you both. I think we've uh, we've explored a, quite a few different angles on what is and what isn't offensive. Perhaps in the UK, we um, we need to develop thicker skins. I don't know if you agree with that. Yeah, always. I'm offended by that. <laughs> <laughs> My special thanks go to our guests today, uh, David Bain from BNB and Features Editor Rebecca Coleman. I'd also like to extend special thanks to our producer Nan Davis, uh, our podcast editor Shona Ghosh, and to our host Something Else. You can join in the conversation on Twitter following our hashtag MarketingMind or tweeting MarketingUK. You can also find out more on our website marketingmagazine.co.uk forward slash podcast. You've been listening to The Marketing Mind. 